Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Welcome to the 200th episode of Political Economy. Thank you all for continuing to listen. I love bringing you these conversations every week. Today, we have something special for you all. I'm speaking with Glenn Hubbard, the former chairman of President George W. Bush's Council of Economic Advisors from 2001 to 2003. We'll be discussing the coronavirus pandemic's effect on the economy, along with a host of other issues which affect the economy in the long term. In addition to his previous role at the White House, Dr. Hubbard is a visiting scholar here at the American Enterprise Institute. And he's also both the Dean Emeritus and the Russell L. Carson Professor of Economics and Finance at Columbia Business School. Glenn, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I want to hit some sort of big picture issues, but I want to focus just at first um, on the sort of the economic impact of the pandemic. Are we out of the woods as far as slipping back into recession, if you even think we're out of the recession yet? Well, I think we are recovering. I have thought from the beginning that the recovery would look like a Nike swoosh sign, like a check mark. So we'd go down and then crawl back up. But I think we're out of the easy part. The part I'm worried about falls into two buckets. One would be just a uh, reoccurrence of the virus. Uh, but the second that's more economic is that we're in the part now where we have to reallocate workers and firms. People are going to be doing different different things. That's going to take a while. And that process may need a little bit more nurturing from fiscal policy than we're currently seeing. So we're not out of the woods. And I, I do get nervous when people think we are. Now, first, we need to shut down and freeze the economy in place. But if we're now in the process of allowing reallocation and creative destruction in order to adapt the economy to the pandemic, does our fiscal support need to be different? It does. I mean, at the beginning, when uh, Congress was focused on something like the CARES Act, the issue was, will the economy shut, economy be shut for some very short period of time and then reopen? And it would make sense to freeze in place particular firms and particular jobs. But that doesn't make sense now. This has lasted much longer. And we know that some kinds of businesses and occupations may be less viable than they were before the pandemic. We still need support. We still need to continue unemployment insurance, but we also need to give support for people to find new jobs, support for training, for support for businesses to retool for the post-pandemic world. But it is different. A reallocation problem is different than a shutdown problem. And the problem is our politics haven't yet caught up to that. We have some people who think we should just do nothing and others who think we're trapped in some typical recession, and we just need to focus on that. So I, I think it's time for some fresh thinking, and unfortunately, I don't see. It would be very tempting for policymakers to say the economy is still weak, and in six months from now, they might be, you know, unemployment is still, uh, you know, much higher than it was uh, pre, uh, pre-pandemic. So for some time, year, maybe two years, maybe longer, it's going to be very easy for policymakers to say, it's, it's too soon. It's too soon. We still, we still, we still need to be giving aid to businesses. We still need to be giving aid to big companies. We don't want them to lay anybody else off. The economy is still too weak. 
uh, to sort of wean it off that aid or change how we're how we're doing things. We've got to keep pushing money out the door as fast as we can and as big a quantities as we can and not worry too much about the uh, uh, the details we're that we're still in the push money out the door phase. Well, I think that kind of size matters approach to fiscal policy is wrong. The question is not just you know how much money we throw at a problem, but do we understand the problem? So when I talk to students about this, I, I talk about a tension between, say, Keynes and Hayek uh, on this approach. At the beginning, we were taking a very Keynes-like approach. We have this big demand hole that accompanied the supply shock of the pandemic. We tried to fill it. But now we're kind of in the Hayek phase of reallocation, of decentralization, of trusting the intuition at the local level and businesses that does require support, but it's not the same kind of support. For example, support for businesses retooling for a post-pandemic world makes a lot of sense. And it might be that programs that Congress has already uh, contemplated, like the Main Street Lending Facility, maybe that helps that. But the notion of freezing things in place to me doesn't make sense. Likewise, I, I can't see an argument for continue to throw money at large firms uh, unless it's for support for changing to this uh, new economy. And the longer we keep people on unemployment, even if they're on generous benefits, they're losing skills and they're losing a chance to reallocate. So if we're going to put money behind something, it ought to be that reallocation. It ought to be retraining. It ought to be preparing people, perhaps with a bonus, for getting that new job. But again, I, I wish I could hear more of this kind of conversation. Uh, are there any areas that you think policymakers should be more concerned about uh, right now? I still hear uh, people are very, they can be maybe they're worried about the real estate market, uh, some other area. Are, are, are there areas where there needs to be greater focus that you think people just aren't focusing enough on? Well, I think policymakers need to focus more on this idea of transition. The particular markets like real estate will have to go through an adjustment. It could be that in some cases and in some cities, rents are too high. It could be that the structure of rents needs to be changed in commercial real estate. But that's really a problem the market will figure out. And I think financial institutions went into this fairly well capitalized. So while there will be real estate losses, I don't think they'll be devastating to the financial system. Like with the discussion about firms and workers generally, we shouldn't be trying to freeze the real estate market in place either. If rents need to come down, then they should. If we need to change the structure of rents, then we should. If we need to be repurposing some kinds of buildings, then we should. The question is, can we support that transition? So rather than taking a few years, it perhaps uh, happens faster. Is the worry I have is the longer people stay unemployed or business owners struggle to get restarted, we could enter another recession, and that's avoidable. Are there any significant things we could have done differently that would have made a big difference in sort of the state of the economy right now? Or did policymakers kind of do an okay job? Well, I think it depends on the type of policy. I think we could have done the shutdown scenario more smartly than we did. We know that different groups in different parts of the country pose different risks. And so the shutdown and reopening perhaps could have been done differently. 
But I think in terms of fiscal support, Congress was bold. I mean, the CARES Act was a breathtaking piece of legislation, and the Federal Reserve has been bold. We probably did too little for state and local governments. I realize that's unpopular in some circles because of other issues, but I think, I think it remains important. I do think Congress did the right thing at the beginning in helping businesses, but I also think right now is not the time just to keep the spigot open without limit, without thinking about transition. Heading into the pandemic, most long-run forecasts placed our long-run growth potential at about 2%. My concern is that the pandemic could weaken our potential by making us more risk-averse, we flee cities, we turn inward on things like trade and immigration. So do you think our 2% economy will become a 1% economy? You know, it doesn't have to. I think that the argument about uh, risk-taking goes back to the kind of transition support we provide to a public policy that's focused on productivity in supporting basic research uh, and business investment. So it doesn't have to turn into a 1% economy. Likewise, I know cities like New York, where I live, look questionable to many at the moment, but that's not the way I see it. Big cities have gone through cycles of different shocks hitting them, particularly in New York with 9-11 and the financial crisis. So I I think it's more a matter of letting the reallocation occur that needs to occur. This economy still has enormous innovative potential. What could kill it is less a a necessary feature of a pandemic, but as you described it, the inward-lookingness of public policy, anti-trade, anti-immigration, in some cases just anti-science and knowledge. We have got to get past this if we want to keep a 2% economy. Uh, you mentioned the uh, the financial crisis. And so over the past 15 years, at least as I see it, we've had three pretty significant uh, economic events. Uh, we had sort of the end of the productivity boomlet that started in the late 90s. We had the global financial crisis. And now we've had this pandemic, uh, which is obviously you know, primarily a health uh, event, but obviously an economic event as well. So we had three sort of these, I think, big to me, big economic shocks. Did any of those change your thinking about economic policy in any way? They all did. You know, I, I think, for example, the way I think about the financial crisis is policymakers really were not engaged with uh, markets and institutions that they were regulating and legislating for. So I always felt during the financial crisis that the Queen of England actually asked the most significant economic question when she said, why did nobody see it coming? And I I didn't interpret the queen as saying, why weren't economists clairvoyant, but more, why don't you get up and walk around? Why didn't you see what was going on? So I I do think economics changed for the better with more of an economics of um, what's going on, of of walking around. And I think there've been improvements in economics since that time. Uh, Likewise with the pandemic, I think it's been not so much something new, although the virus was, but more of an accelerant of changes we're, we were seeing already. So a discussion of where is growth going to come from? How concerned should we be about inequality and outcomes in our economy? I think those are questions in economics that are going to jump to the forefront. What I fear, though, is that in the policy process, whether it's old economics or new economics, we're, we're more likely to see no economics Uh, either a discussion of just vague slogans on one side or the other, 
or downright harmful policies like anti-trade, uh, anti-immigration, or even anti-business. We talk a lot about productivity growth in this podcast. So when are we going to have another productivity boom? I mean, I know these things are pretty much impossible to predict. I remember Lehman Brothers back in 1999 predicted that the U.S. was going to grow indefinitely at like 4% a year. But of course, that didn't happen. And Lehman Brothers didn't even last another decade. So how do you think about productivity growth and whether policy has a lot to say right now about boosting it? Well, I'll start with um, you know, an honest description of what we know as economists and then give you a prognostication. Economists are really good at looking at productivity growth cycles in the rear view mirror, less good at forecasting them. Your Lehman Brothers example uh, comes to mind, but one could put economic luminaries uh, as optimists uh, and as, as pessimists. I, however, think that we are on the cusp of a potential productivity boom. And I see this because of the introduction of better um, artificial intelligence and robotics techniques as what economists would call a general purpose technology. And by general purpose technology, I mean things like electrification or computing or the internet, things that have the capability of really changing business uh, and productivity. And the reason I say on the cusp, given that these aren't brand new, why are we still on the cusp? It takes a while for business to adjust. If you look at each of the general purpose technologies that I mentioned, it took a decade or even as long as a generation to go from science to productivity. And the reason wasn't about science and engineering as much as it was about business and organization. The companies have to change the way they do business, the way they organize. And I think that's what's going to be critical. And that's why I get nervous about excessive government involvement in the economy, because for that to happen, businesses need to be able to organize themselves efficiently. And the worst thing that we could do is try to put the economy in a straitjacket. So that growth is possible. I think 4% is a little aggressive, but we could have better productivity growth uh, in the country, one and a half or maybe up to 2% per year. It's just going to take uh, a much more concerted focus on both research, which is easy to say, but also on organization design, which is harder to do. It seems like it's very easy uh, to work on economic policy these days because you can come up with great ideas and you don't have to really explain how you'll pay for them. There seems to be very little interest in debts and deficits and those kinds of fiscal uh, constraints. Do you still care about the debts and deficits? And uh, are you the la- if you do, are, do you feel like you're in a very small group that is shrinking day by day? I do care, and I understand that I'm in a very small group, but I know that eventually uh, the worm will turn and people will focus on this, uh, not because I'm, quote, right, but because math is math. You know, you can argue about politics, you can even argue about economics, but you can't really argue about arithmetic. And we are on a fiscally unsustainable path. Now, it doesn't mean that the crisis is tomorrow. Uh, And it doesn't even mean that we couldn't make additional public investment to raise productivity. We could do those things. But the notion that we could just start all new social programs or have massive spending without thinking about the future and have the Fed simply finance it, I just think is a fool's errand. And what I worry about is that nobody in the political process is standing for this. So normally in an election year, 
we would see some kind of tension about this, but we're not. One side, you know, says the deficits don't matter and we have one particular idea. Another side says deficits don't matter and we have another idea, but we're not seeing any budget constraint for the people. It's like the old days when menus and restaurants sometimes didn't have prices on them. I mean, it's easy to pick things when you don't know how much they cost. And I worry the American people are, are facing that. And the longer we wait to make the choices we need to make, there can be real damage. Uh, that is cutting support for other things like research or education or national defense, or cutting uh, support that seniors and others have come to expect, or raising taxes to the point where we can't have growth. I, I see these choices as very unappealing if we don't act. Uh, it, it's hard to believe, and I, I made this uh, comment on Twitter uh, the other day, and I got a lot of response. It's hard to believe that there actually used to be in presidential campaigns fights about budget scoring where someone will put out a plan and be scored that no no you're doing it wrong no no you're, you're scoring the budget no wrong. this Here's is you are you are so right anymore. you are so right i i was saying to a reporter the other day i can remember being nervous you know that somebody would question your numbers you know that we spent so much time quote back in the day on scoring tax plans and spending plans for presidential candidates so that they could pass muster and now one can just say, well, something will cost a few trillion dollars and we'll figure out how to pay for it, or, or maybe we won't. You know, I was amused by some of the comments I've seen in the paper where staffers have said, why do people ask how we're going to pay for it? Well, because you have to. So, yeah, I get, I get very worried about where we are. Uh, there's an investment strategy uh, called momentum investing. And momentum investing is built around the idea that you let your winners run. This is uh, a very popular strategy. I used to work at a newspaper called Investors Business Daily, and they loved momentum investing in that paper. I used to always hear that, let your winners run. That seems to be the new Fed monetary policy. If the job market's running, we're going to let that job market run. Uh, what do you think of this sort of new change in focus by the Powell Fed, which I assume will be a sort of a, a, a long-term change in direction? Well, I think there's some good things in it and some things to be really worried about. Uh, to start on the positive, the Fed had done a poor job of hitting its own stated inflation targets. And I and other economists have urged for the past several years that the Fed think more about uh, an average inflation targeting of, of making up for bygones. I, I think that's easier to uh, suggest than so-called price level targeting, which is mechanically something similar, but really hard to explain to the public. So that's good. I think the Fed giving up on its sort of model-based monetary policy is a positive. But I think it's incredibly naive to think that the Federal Reserve is the answer to any of the structural problems that we've been talking about. The Federal Reserve is not going to facilitate the reallocation of workers in the economy. The Federal Reserve is not going to facilitate productivity growth. So while I agree the Fed should not be snuffing out potential employment booms that aren't inflationary, the notion that we can just relax on fiscal policy and regulatory policy and let the Fed rip uh, is a mistake. It is also the case that it draws the Fed you know, constantly into political concerns, the more it promises and underdelivers. So I, while I, I commend the Fed for doing a, a study for saying that it was wrong and it needs to change, that's good. 
but I think it's really naive for them and for us to think it's going to fix our problems. Might low interest rates actually interfere in that reallocation process? Definitely. They can keep some weaker firms alive that probably shouldn't be. It really compresses returns in the financial services sector, which uh, you know, really slows down credit intermediation and risk transfer. And for many individuals, uh, particularly the retired or people near retirement, uh, it's a problem. You know, going back to Hayek, I mentioned before, you know, Hayek thought one of the geniuses of the price system is that it aggregated up all the information from markets. You didn't have to solve equations. If the Fed is uh, compressing risk premia and pushing interest rates down, we're shutting off um, Hayek's use of knowledge argument. And that may not be in fashion that the Fed's part of Constitution Avenue, but it's something I worry about a lot. Do you think we'll ever have an economic consensus on the impact of the Trump tax cuts, given that they went into effect alongside a big trade war and shortly before the pandemic? Will we ever really know whether they worked or even what that means? I think it's really hard. We know that um, as a theoretical matter, the corporate tax pieces of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017 um, should have been very pro-investment. And in the early days of the uh, tax reforms enactment, it was, as you said, we had going the other direction, both bad trade policy and bad trade policy uncertainty that really chilled uh, business investment. But I think of it as being like that. What theory told us would work, and that theory has been tested many times in many places, was working. And so I, I think that the that element of the TCJA remains important. We do need better policy around it. I don't think anybody believes that tax policy alone is going to change investment and productivity without uh, better public policy uh, generally. So I, I think we won't really know. To me, some of the most positive things President Trump did were right at the very beginning. He really put a spring in the step of many business leaders with a view toward a more pro-business public policy and a regulatory approach that would focus more on economic analysis. But his administration then moved very far away from that with enormous policy uncertainty. So it really makes it very difficult when somebody steps on his own lead. In a, in a vibrant free market economy, there is going to be inequality. Are you concerned that the level of income or wealth inequality is now such that it is defeating, it, it's crimping growth, it's crimping economic opportunity? Uh, and if you do, what do we do about it? Well, I, I don't think the answer is simply uh, let's solve inequality by soaking the rich and bringing them down. I, to me, the real issue is about opportunity. I think if you go back in economics, as far as Scottish Enlightenment thinkers and people like Adam Smith, they were concerned about mass flourishing as being a social support for a market system. So to me, that means everybody should have the opportunity to participate in the economy and prosper in the economy. And participate means the opportunity to really have the skills to get the jobs that are and will be, not the jobs that were and have been. And prosper means, can I buy a home? Can I uh, start a business all in a fair way without barriers or discrimination? 
those are really legitimate focuses of public policy. I don't think however many Jeff Bezos's or Bill Gates we have are getting in the way of that. In fact, each of those people are symbolizing something that was good for business in the country. Do we have tax problems with some of the rich? Yes, it is a problem if some people can accumulate wealth and not pay taxes on it. That's an issue. But go after that narrow issue, the whole idea that we need to focus uh, on envy about the rich, I think is, is uh, a mistake in public policy. And it's also a missed opportunity for going after the real issue, which is participation and prosperity for everybody. But you want, one would assume that Jeff Bezos did not, that he did not go into Amazon thinking that he was someday going to be worth 200 billion. And, you know, the same with the Google guys or, or, or just about any super successful entrepreneur that they did not have the, probably the expectation of those kinds of levels of wealth, but couldn't. And that people suggested things very close to this. You know, after a billion, the government takes everything else. Or maybe it's even maybe maybe it's even 500 million. People would still start companies. They'd still you know be doing fantastic, but they wouldn't. They, they do not need sort of the that obscene level of reward to start uh, to start you know companies that end up being very successful. Well, I don't know what words like need or obscene mean in this context. I I do think to the extent that it is possible to accumulate great wealth without paying any tax on it, we should go after that. And there's some pretty simple reforms of capital taxation and the estate tax that do it. But also remember that very wealthy individuals going back uh, at least 100 years have been big sources of enormous private philanthropic initiatives in the country. And so to my mind, when you say, let's simply take all that wealth above 500 million or a billion or 100 billion, whatever number you want to pick. Indeed, indeed so, so, some, would, some would pick a number remarkably, you know, dramatically lower than the ones I just gave you as well. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. But I, I think that what it's saying is that government somehow uh, will do better with that money than those individuals. And I, I guess I, I struggle with that. Is $100 billion a lot of money? Of course it is. Would Jeff Bezos have started Amazon if he could have made $20 billion? Likely. But I don't think the solution to that is simply to nationalize their wealth as opposed to smarter tax policy. I, I, I could remind everybody, if we had a, a tax reform that focused on cash flow taxation, I know somewhat arcane topic, but of general interest at, at AEI and in many parts of Washington, we would be capturing taxes on a lot of these rents that made these people so rich. And instead, we're focused on other things. So if we care, there are tools, but the tools shouldn't be shutting down certain people or certain activities. I'm worried that there's people on the left and right talking more and more about how America needs to take a page from China's book and start enacting industrial policy to protect our companies from competition. Does that concern you? It does. I remember um, not long after I became chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, an extremely prominent venture capitalist, whose name I won't mention, came to see me with other venture capitalists in tow from Silicon Valley. And he started off the meeting asking me what my plans were for the economy. And I said, gentlemen and ladies, I, I was going to start by asking you guys that question. Well, I don't see why my plans are particularly relevant at all. And to my mind, if government is doing its job and supporting basic research, 
basic science, things that have externalities and spillovers and require public support. And we make sure that there are limited barriers to the formation of those new industries. They will happen. Where we get into trouble is picking certain uneconomic activities and just subsidizing them or, or letting politicians choose. So I'm all for government involvement to level the playing field, to make sure we have competition, to make sure we have strong support for basic research. But I think it would be a little naive to imagine a group of mandarins in Washington picking the industries of the future. In fact, I think it would be scary. And to wrap up, I hear a lot that America is experiencing late stage capitalism. Inequality is exploding, economic mobility is falling, and corporate concentration is harming our workers and our democracy. Do you think we're experiencing late stage capitalism? Or do you think that fundamentally our system still works? I think we're experiencing evolving capitalism. And Marx, of course, thought capitalism would inevitably fail. And what he forgot, among many things, was the notion of regeneration, uh, some through the uh, industries and efforts of individuals and businesses, and some through better public policy. So I, I do think capitalism will evolve. Uh, I do think we will see uh, interventions to support better competition, hopefully interventions that promote opportunity, but we cannot and should not write capitalism off. My guest today has been Glenn Hubbard. Glenn, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. My pleasure.